1 John 1, starting at verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We stopped there last time. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him, meaning God, a liar, and His word is not in us. We're investigating this last section in two parts. Part one this morning and the second part next time. And this is strange because we aren't going to actually get to the text itself until the very end of the message, something I've never done. Hopi and I were married in First Church of the Nazarene in Kansas City. She attended First Church, so she wanted to be married there. And besides, her parents paid for the wedding and uh, said, sure, no problem. The international headquarters of the Church of the Nazarene is located in Kansas City. To be more precise, since 2008, it relocated to a suburb of Kansas City called Lenexa in Johnson County, Kansas. The Nazarene Church was organized in 1908. It exists in some 164 uh, geographical regions. It has some 30,875 churches and missions and some 2.6 million members. So it is a sizable denomination. Hopi was a generational Nazarene. Her mother and brother were both employed at the Nazarene Publishing House. She left the Nazarene Church after we were married. We left Kansas City and moved to East Texas where I continued my education, but most of her relatives still attend Nazarene congregations. Probably the most recognizable and respected member of the Nazarene Church is Dr. James Dobson, founder of Focus on the Family. Dr. Dobson is a licensed psychologist and author and radio broadcaster. Dr. Dobson is now 86, and for decades he has been a courageous force for traditional Judeo-Christian values, and I thank God for him. The Church of the Nazarene consists of sincere people who love Jesus. Uh, it's interesting, some of the finest people in our congregation have come from Nazarene backgrounds. I've actually preached in Nazarene churches and was well-received. You can imagine that. Um, Nazarenes are evangelicals just as we are, but there are some differences between Nazarenes and the rest of evangelicalism. Um, and we're going to address one of those differences. This is not intended to be a critical comment on the Nazarene church per se, but a comment on a doctrine Nazarenes teach. The Nazarene church came into existence from the Wesleyan holiness movement within Methodism. In a doctrinal sense, the Nazarene denomination is the same as Wesleyan Methodism. It is an actual member denomination of the World Methodist Council. The founder of what we now know as Methodism was a man named John Wesley. 
He was an 18th century English cleric, theologian, and evangelist who brought about a revival movement within the Church of England we now know as Methodism. He preached in huge open-air meetings that thousands attended, and he rode more than 250,000 miles on horseback in order to do that. That's a distance of 10 times around the globe. He preached some 40,000 sermons and authored and or edited 400 books and publications. He was also a fierce abolitionist. He denounced the slave trade as, quote, the sum of all villainies. Most people are aware that England abolished the slave trade more than three decades uh, before we did. The one man most responsible for outlawing the practice of owning slaves there was a member of the English Parliament named William Wilberforce. Mr. Wilberforce was a committed evangelical Christian. John Wesley became a close friend and a mentor to Mr. Wilberforce. Wesley's last letter was written from his deathbed, and it was addressed to Mr. Wilberforce, encouraging him not to give in to the fierce pro-slave opposition against his efforts that had lasted for decades. He didn't quit, and Wilberforce learned that the slave trade would be made illegal just three days before he died. The amount of good John Wesley did for the Christian cause is incalculable. He was an amazing man. The two most successful evangelists during that time period were John Wesley and George Whitfield. 80% of the New England colonists heard George Whitfield preach. He was extremely popular uh, in the 13 colonies. One of his biggest admirers and fans was Benjamin Franklin. Both men were friends, but came from different and opposing theological perspectives. John Wesley was committed to a theological perspective called Arminianism, named after Dutch theologian Jacobus Arminius, and George Whitfield was committed to Calvinism, named after French theologian John Calvin. The Arminian-Calvinism debate is an in-house debate, meaning it is a debate among Christians that has existed for centuries. But to demonstrate how we should act toward one another as Christians, despite our non-essential theological differences, someone once asked George Whitfield if he thought he would see John Wesley in heaven. That might have been a gotcha question. If it was, then it backfired. To paraphrase his answer to that question, did he think he would see John Wesley in heaven? George Whitfield responded, I doubt it. I doubt it. Mr. Wesley will be so close to God's throne, and I will be so far from it, I doubt I can see him. Whitfield held John Wesley in high esteem. And both men had much mutual respect for one another, as it should be. Evangelist Wesley taught a doctrine that be became part of Methodism and over time part of the Nazarene Church. And that doctrine is called entire sanctification or sinless perfection. The Salvation Army Church also teaches that doctrine. Let me set this up. There are three theological words that describe 
the Christian experience. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. This is basic Christianity 101 doctrine. Don't miss this. Justification is something past tense. Past tense. Justification occurs at someone's salvation and results in someone being pronounced righteous so that he is then acceptable to God. Justification is past tense because it happens at someone's salvation and results in someone being pronounced or declared righteous, not made righteous. That's Catholicism. Catholicism believes justification is a process we earn through self-effort and the sacraments. It is not. Through justification, someone is pronounced righteous. God pronounced says that person righteous, so that he is then acceptable to God. Justification is a one-time, non-repeatable, irreversible, invisible, spiritual transaction that occurs at someone's salvation. Second, sanctification is something present tense. Present tense. Sanctification occurs throughout the entire Christian experience and is the practical experiential process of someone being conformed to resemble Jesus. Sanctification occurs throughout someone's Christian experience and is the practical, experiential, progressive process of someone being conformed to resemble Jesus. The words sanctify, sanctification, holy, holiness, and saint are all related words. Those words are all derived from the same root word in the Greek language. And that word means to separate. That word means to separate something from someone else. As an example, I have, if I have six oranges sitting together in a box, and I remove one of those oranges in order to eat it, then that one orange I removed and separated from the rest of those oranges is now a sanctified orange. It is a holy orange. It has nothing to do with being sinless because it doesn't have moral value. It's an orange. But it's a sanctified holy orange because it was separated from the other oranges. Sanctification means in a progressive sense throughout our Christian experience someone is separating himself more and more from sin and separating himself more and more unto God. Sanctification <laughs> describes someone's attempt in a progressive sense to resemble Jesus. And then third, glorification. <clears throat> glorification is future tense. Glorification occurs at the rapture and results in someone being made perfect inside and out. Someone is perfected at the moment Jesus returns at the rapture. Someone's soul is purified permanently from all sin and his body is revamped and remade to resemble Jesus resurrected body. And most of us are anxious to get our new bodies. <clears throat> As Christians, we have been justified, past tense, at salvation. We are being sanctified, present tense, throughout our Christian experience. And we will be glorified, future tense, at the moment Jesus returns. Our focus now as a Christian should be on our present sanctification. <clears throat> 
Our ambition should be to resemble Jesus in all that we are. And that includes our attitude, our actions, and our reactions. There is a problem, though. We mentioned that problem earlier. That problem is called entire sanctification or sinless perfection. This is where Wesleyan Methodism comes into the equation. John Wesley taught that doctrine. And although Methodism as a whole doesn't now teach that doctrine, Wesleyan Methodists and Wesleyan Methodists do still exist, and Nazarenes still teach that doctrine in addition to the Salvation Army denomination. Now, please don't misunderstand. This doctrine, entire sanctification, is problematic, but this doctrine is not essential to the Christian faith. This is considered a non-essential doctrine. So this is something that as Christians we can agree to disagree on if we're agreeable in doing that. I went to the Church of the Nazarene website and on the home page in large letters it reads what we believe. The Church of the Nazarene, this is the website, The Church of the Nazarene is the largest denomination in the classical Wesleyan holiness tradition. The doctrine that distinguishes the Church of the Nazarene and other Wesleyan denominations from most other Christian denominations is that of entire sanctification. Nazarenes believe that God calls Christians to a life of holy living. Agreed. That is marked by an act of God Cleansing the heart from original sin, meaning no more original sin. And filling the individual with love for God and mankind. And that's good. And reading more on that doctrine reveals that entire sanctification means sinless perfection. Meaning that someone can reach a sinless and perfect state of existence on earth before heaven. My Nazarene mother-in-law loved Jesus. She was a good woman. Uh, She is now in heaven. She believed this doctrine of entire sanctification. And she once told me that she thought I had actually reached this state of sinless perfection. I never heard that before. No one ever accused me of that before. I said, Mom, if that's the case, how do we account for all the stupid things I do? She said, those are mistakes, not sins. Understand, redefining sin as a mistake doesn't make it a mistake. It's still sin. And I do still sin. I'm not even remotely close to being perfect. And if there's any doubt, see Hopi after the service. Let's address hemartiology. Hemartiology is the doctrine of sin. Probably a word most have never heard. Sin exists in three basic categories. One is imputed sin. Imputed sin. The word impute and imputation means to ascribe to, to reckon to someone's account. To reckon to someone's account. It's similar to a credit card charge that is added to someone's account. 
If we were to use a credit card, we don't use credit cards. We use debit cards because we give Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University course. Uh, if we were to use a credit card, though, to charge some gas, then the exact amount of that gas purchased would then be imputed or reckoned or added to our credit card account as something that we owe. That's what it means to impute something. Another example, if I were to uh, give you a check for $1,000 and you deposited that check into your checking account, that would be me imputing $1,000, adding $1,000 to your account. Now, don't, don't get too excited. That's, that's not going to happen. <clears throat> that was a purely hypothetical example. Notice the definition. Imputed sin is the first man's first sin being charged to our spiritual account. Imputed sin is the first man's, Adam's, first sin being charged to our spiritual account. That's the reason that imputed sin is also called original sin. The classic biblical text on imputed sin is found in Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. And the most often mentioned verse from that section is verse 12. Um, we touched on this verse last month. Romans 5 verse 12 reads, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. I want us to see three things in this verse. One, sin entered the human race through one man. Sin entered the human race through one man. And that man was the first man God created and named Adam. Verse 12 reads, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, God placed the first man and first woman into the garden, and God instructed them not to eat the fruit on the forbidden tree. Those first humans were assigned one restriction, just one, and that one limitation was don't eat fruit from that tree. It's interesting, it was the woman that was actually the first one to eat the forbidden fruit. But the person held responsible for that sin is the man, not the woman. The statement is made that through one man, not through one woman, through one man, sin entered the human race. It is true that in a chronological sense, woman sinned first, but in a theological sense, because man was created first, and because he was the federal head of the human race, meaning he was the representative head of humanity, then he was made responsible. Some men don't understand that blame being assigned to us. Um, as illustrated in the question, these men sometimes ask, where would man be without woman? Where would man be without woman? Still in the garden. Um, that's, <clears throat> that's not so. One chauvinistic type said to me that if the first man had been in Eve's position in the garden at the time of Satan's temptation, then Adam would not have been deceived into eating that fruit. Because according to him, uh, men aren't as naive and as gullible as women. He felt that men are above being deceived. I am a man, and I don't think so. Listen to this. 
This was an actual want ad in a major newspaper. It reads, black female seeks male companionship. Ethnicity is unimportant. I'm a very good-looking girl who loves to play. I love long walks in the woods, riding in your pickup truck, hunting, camping, and fishing trips. Cozy winter nights, lying by the fire. Candlelight dinners will have me eating out of your hand. Rub me the right way and watch me respond. I'll be at the front door when you get home from work, wearing only what Mother Nature gave me. Kiss me, and I'm yours. Call area code 404-875-6420 and ask for Daisy. As a result of that want ad, more than 15,000 men found themselves talking to the Atlanta Humane Society about an eight-week-old black Labrador retriever. Don't tell me men cannot be deceived. <clears throat> men, it wouldn't have made a difference if we had been where Eve was in the garden at the time the serpent tempted her. We would still have been disobedient, just as Eve was. But because Adam was created first, that's the creation order, and because he represented the entire human race, God held him responsible and said that man, not woman, man brought sin to humanity. Second, death entered the human race through sin. Death entered the human race through sin. Verse 12 reads, and death through sin. Meaning the consequence from sin is death. That means death is a foreign intrusion because God did not design man to die. It was sin that caused death. Death cannot exist apart from sin. And third, death was transmitted to all human beings because all human beings have sinned through the first man. Death was transmitted to all humans because all humans have sinned through the first man. Verse 12 continues, thus, thus death spread to all men because all sin. It's interesting that the word translated sin, sinned in that statement, is the translation of a Greek aortic tense verb that indicates that at one point in time, at a singular point in time, all men sinned. In the original language, that word translated here as sinned is a Greek aortic tense verb that indicates that at one moment in time, one point in time, all men sinned. Think through that. It means that the entire human race sinned at the same point in time that Adam sinned. And the reason that's true is because we were all potentially in Adam. We are all descendants from the first man. So at the moment Adam sinned, all his descendants sinned, meaning each of us. At the moment he sinned, we sinned. Romans 5 verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Question, and who was that one man? That one man was the first man, Adam. And his disobedience, not Eve's disobedience, his disobedience was the original sin 
in the garden. And so God imputed, God added the first man's original sin to our account. Adam's sin didn't just affect him, it affected all of us. One of the strongest evidences that Adam's original sin has been imputed to all of us is that all humans die. Pre-born babies die through a miscarriage or from an abortion. Um, then newborn babies die from disease or injuries or from SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. And the reason that happens, the reasons unborn fetuses do die, and the reason newborns do die, the reason there is infant mortality is not because small babies have committed some personal sin themselves, because those babies aren't capable of committing sin. But it's because the consequences from the first man's original sin has been imputed to them. God has imputed Adam's original sin to the entire human race. And as a result of that imputed sin, all humans die. Second, there is imputed sin. Second, there is principled sin. The word sin is used in Scripture in both a singular and plural form. The word sins, plural, S-I-N-S, sometimes refers to individual sinful actions, meaning acts of sin people commit. And the word sin, singular S-I-N, sometimes refers to the sin principle or sin nature. Notice the definition. Principled sin, and this is also called the sin principle or the sin nature or the flesh or the old man. These are all synonyms. Principled sin is this invisible urge inside someone that causes him to have a propensity for committing sin. Principled sin, this sin nature of ours, is this invisible urge inside us causing us to have a susceptibility to committing sin. The Protestant reformers called it that bent to sinning. This is something that all people inherit from succeeding generations originating at the first man. The sin principle or sin nature was added to the first man the moment he sinned. And that sin nature was the reason he continued to sin and continued to sin and continued to sin after he had eaten the forbidden fruit. And then at some point after that first sin, those first parents um, had children. There was a law that states that each thing reproduces after its own kind. Peaches produce peaches, not watermelons. Imagine that, hanging from trees. Grasshoppers produce other grasshoppers, not tarantulas. Dogs have dogs and not cats, because each thing reproduces after itself. That means that Adam's sin nature was reproduced in his children. And then his children reproduced that same sin nature in their children. And then their children reproduced that same sin nature in their children. And that reproduction process has continued throughout generation after generation after generation until each of us are conceived inside our mothers possessing this sin principle or sin nature. 
Psalm 51 verse 5. David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Don't misunderstand that verse. That phrase, his mother conceived him in sin, doesn't mean that David's mother conceived him through sexual relations outside of marriage. It doesn't mean David was an illegitimate child, because he wasn't. It means David inherited his sin nature through his mother at his conception. And each of us inherit that same sin principle, that same sin nature, at the moment we begin, we begin to begin. And contrary to what Planned Parenthood and pro-abortionists teach, human life begins at conception. Now don't miss this. I am not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I am a sinner. I'm not a sinner because I commit sins, but I commit sins because I've a, I have a sin nature that creates inside me a susceptibility to commit sins. Someone does not become a sinner through committing sins, but he commits sins because he is by nature a sinner. That's the reason. No one has to teach a child how to become a terrible two. No one has to teach a child how to throw temper tantrums. He knows how to do that on his own. And it's because he has inherited a sin nature from his parents who received a sin nature from their parents who received a sin nature from their parents and on and on and on until Ancestry.com traces it all back to Adam. Okay, that was a joke. Ancestry.com can't do that. Even though none of us can fill in all the ancestral names on our genealogical family tree, if we could, we cannot, if we could, though, continue regressing in time, we would all end up at the first man, Adam. He started this thing called the Homo sapien species. He's the reason we have imputed sin. He's the reason we have principled sin or this sin nature. I need to interject an important footnote at this juncture. At salvation, Jesus gives us a new spiritual nature that counteracts the old sin nature. Some call that the new man we receive that counteracts the old man that we have had. The Christian has two opposing natures. We can better understand the word nature if we understand it as a capacity. So the Christian has inside him two opposing capacities. The old nature we receive at conception contains the capacity to sin. And the new nature we receive at salvation contains the capacity to resist sinning. So the old nature has the capacity to commit sin. The new nature has the capacity to resist committing sin. And there's this constant, ongoing competition between them. Galatians 5, verse 17. For the flesh, this is the old sin nature, lust or desires against the spirit. And the spirit is this new spiritual nature we receive from the Holy Spirit at salvation. So the old nature fights against, wars against the new nature. 
Notice, and the spirit fights against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another. That means Christians are essentially spiritual schizophrenics. Because Christians have a dual nature. There's the old nature that is bent on sin, and then there's the new nature that cannot sin. And the two natures are at constant and total war against one another. Paul commented on that internal struggle in Romans 7. This is an interesting text. Romans 7, starting at verse 15. Paul said, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. Meaning, what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, that I do. Meaning, what I hate to do, and don't want to do, I end up doing. Verse 16. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. Let me reword that. Paul said, if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, it means I agree that the law is good. The law is good because it makes me aware of wrongdoing. Verse 17, but now it is no longer I who do it. It's not me, Paul said, but sin, meaning his internal invisible sin nature that dwells in me. Verse 18, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Paul said there's nothing good about our flesh, nothing good about our sin nature. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Verse 19, for the good that I will to do, I do not do it. Meaning the good that I want to do, sometimes I don't do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Meaning the evil that I don't want to do, sometimes I end up doing. Verse 20, now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin, meaning our sin nature, that dwells in me. Paul said, if I do what I don't want to do, it's not me so much as it is this sin nature inside me. Okay, that's a brain buster reading through that text. Paul is frustrated. Let me summarize the essence of Paul's frustration. Paul said, I don't understand me. I I sometimes don't do the good I want to do, but instead I sometimes do the sin that I hate doing. And that's because I cave into my old nature. There's nothing good in my old nature. So it's not the new nature doing what I don't want to do, but it's that old, rotten sin nature causing me to sin. And most of us can relate to that. All of us should be able to relate to that. And the secret to the Christian experience is in permitting the new nature to dominate and subdue the old nature. Success as a Christian is in permitting the new nature we receive at salvation to dominate and subdue the old nature we received at conception. Not unlike the farmer that had two dogs that fought all the time. And someone asked him, which dog wins those fights? He said, the one I feed the most. His logic was, if one dog was well fed and the second dog was barely fed, 
then in time the well-fed dog would be the stronger animal and he would dominate and subdue the other dog in a fight. Now don't misunderstand that illustration. I am not endorsing dog fighting. Okay, I'm not doing that. That's illegal. That's cruel, inhumane. That's not what I mean. But in the same sense as that farmer learned if someone feeds his soul on worship music and praise to God, he feeds his soul on Bible reading and other Christian literature and on biblical teaching from YouTube or from radio or from podcasts or from, as we are doing, in person. And if someone feeds his soul on praying and hanging around solid Christians, if all that is happening, then his new nature is going to be fed and nourished and strengthened to the degree it is then able to dominate and subdue his old nature. The problem is that some Christians are defeated because their old man is fed a constant diet consisting of sometimes violent video games and sometimes illicit romance novels and sometimes immoral television sitcoms or worse pornographic websites and sometimes vulgar hip-hop and rap music and constant excuses to miss church and constant interaction with unregenerate people that care less about God so through all of this the old nature is being fed and the new nature is being starved and then these irresponsible Christians can't understand why things go from bad to worse number three there's imputed sin there's principled sin third is personal sin personal sin notice the definition personal sins are individual acts of practical sin individual acts of practical sin personal sin can be categorized into one of two basic classifications one is sins of commission sins of commission this is sin resulting from us doing something we shouldn't do if God said don't and then we do that's a sin of commission because we committed a wrongdoing. 1 John 3, verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness means violating the law. And that's the same as doing what we shouldn't do. An example. If the speed limit down Main Street is an unrealistic and unreasonable 25 miles per hour. <laughs> I am told it used to be more. And we're going 45 miles per hour, then we're doing what we shouldn't do. And that's a traffic violation. That's a form of lawlessness and a sin. Remember that personal practical acts of sin are an extension of someone's internal principal sin or sin nature. Because man's basic problem is not outside of him, but is inside of him. Some people suggest the solution to man's problems is the social gospel. A solution to man's problems is to improve his social conditions and improve his environment. It's true, better housing opportunities 
and better transportation and better education and better jobs and more affordable health care might solve some societal problems. But none of those things can solve man's most fundamental problem, and that is the sin inside of him. But man's pride sometimes prevents him from admitting to his sin. I mentioned last time evangelist Dwight Moody. He was invited to speak at a church where he had never been before. And just before it was his time to speak, the pastor whispered to him and warned him that often, I found this strange, often some people would get up during the message, during the sermon, and actually leave the service. Understanding that warning and wanting to prevent that from happening to him, Moody stood up to preach and said to this congregation, there are two categories of people in this room, sinners and saints. Sinners meaning unsaved sinners, sinners that have never received salvation through Jesus, and saints meaning saved sinners, sinners that have received salvation through Jesus. He said there are two categories of people, sinners and saints. I want to address each group. So he first spent about 25 minutes addressing the sinners. He addressed sin. And then he announced, I am now finished commenting on sinners. So before we continue and address the saints, all those here that consider themselves sinners are free to go. No one moved. He finished his entire message. And literally no one left the room. See, Moody was forced to adjust and be creative in his preaching approach because people don't want to admit to sin. I'm going to inject something I did not include until late, late, late last night, about one this morning. Mentioning sin is becoming less and less frequent in evangelical congregations because it's considered offensive to discuss sin from the pulpit. Ministers are told to address more positive matters such as self-esteem and human potential and interpersonal relations and emotional health and surviving stress and on and on and on. And ministers are told to ignore controversial subjects, and in particular, societal sins. I'm grateful, though, there are still some men that aren't afraid to address sin and aren't afraid to speak truth to sinners. A classic example of that was from this past Sunday. California Governor Gavin Newsom did something earlier in September that was utterly blasphemous. He announced that his gubernatorial campaign had paid for 18 billboards advertising California abortion services. He had these billboards put up in seven red states that have enacted abortion restrictions. In a statement announcing the erection of those billboards, he said that he had a message, quote, for women seeking abortion care in these anti-freedom states. Come to California, 
we will defend your constitutional right to make decisions about your own health. To add further insult to that announcement, that public announcement that advertised abortion services in his state, at the bottom of those billboards, and I've seen pictures of them, at the bottom of those billboards is printed a quotation from Jesus. In particular, I printed the words to Jesus' second great commandment. Mark 12, verse 31 reads, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Who would have guessed that loving our neighbor could mean murdering our neighbor's unborn child? John MacArthur pastors Grace Community Church in Los Angeles. He has pastored there 53 years. A remarkable feat. He read about those billboards and said to himself, enough is enough. He sat down and proceeded to write a personal letter to the governor himself. It was sent to his office in Sacramento. And then he turned that private letter into a more public open letter. I have printed copies of that letter that are available after the service. It is an incredible document. Using the strength of Scripture, he literally ripped the governor's godless actions to shreds. It is personal. He used the words you and yours almost 40 times. It is direct. It is pointed. It is bold. It is thoroughly biblical. And he doesn't pull punches. Let me read part of that correspondence. He addresses this letter to Sir. Almighty God says in his word, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Proverbs 14, verse 34. Scripture also teaches that it is the chief duty of any civic leader to reward those who do well and to punish evildoers. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. You, meaning Governor Newsom, you have not only failed in that responsibility, you routinely turn it on its head, rewarding evildoers and punishing the righteous. The Word of God pronounces judgment on those who call evil good and good evil. Isaiah 5, verse 20. And yet many of your policies reflect this unholy, upside-down view of humor, of honor, and morality. The diabolical effects of your worldview are evident in the statistics of California's epidemics of crime, homelessness, sexual perversion such as homosexuality and transgenderism, and other malignant expressions of human misery that stem directly from corrupt public policy. I don't need to itemize or elaborate on the many immoral decisions you have perpetuated against God and against the people of our state, which have only exacerbated these problems. Nevertheless, my goal in writing is not to contend with your politics, but rather to plead with you to hear and heed what the Word of God says to men in your position. Psalm 72, verse 11, Let all kings bow down before him, meaning God. Let all nations serve him. 
2 Samuel 23, verse 3 and 4. He who rules over men righteously, he who rules in the fear of God, he is as light of the morning when the sun rises. Proverbs 16, verse 2. It is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts, for a throne is established on righteousness. In mid-September, you, meaning Governor Newsom, you revealed to the entire nation how thoroughly rebellious against God you are when you sponsored billboards across America promoting the slaughter of children whom he creates in the room. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. You further compounded the wickedness of that murderous campaign with a reprehensible act of gross blasphemy, quoting the very words of Jesus from Mark 12, verse 31, as if you could somehow twist his meaning and aggregate his name in favor of butchering unborn infants. You use the name and the words of Christ to promote the credo of Molech. Leviticus 20 verses 1 through 5. It would be hard to imagine a greater sacrilege. Molech was a Canaanite god. People literally sacrificed their infants to. John continued, Furthermore, you chose words from the lips of Jesus without admitting that in that same moment he gave the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Mark 12, verse 30. You cannot love God as he commands while aiding in the murder of his image bearers. My concern, Governor Newsom, is that your own soul lies in grave eternal peril. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Romans 14, verse 12. One day, not very long from now, you will face that reality. Nothing is more certain. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Hebrews 9, 27. You will stand in the presence of the holy God who created you, who is your judge, and he will demand that you give an account for how you have flouted his authority in your governing and how you have twisted his own holy word to rationalize it. As you look over the precipice of eternity, what will your answer be? Will you look ahead of you and see that nothing awaits you but eternal misery and the just punishment for your sins? What will all the clever rationalizations and political talking points avail for you then? And by then it will be too late for any remedy or redemption. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10 verse 31. My plea to you, sir, is that you would not let it come to that. That you would not go to that day of judgment apart from receiving forgiveness and righteousness through faith in Christ alone. So there is salvation for those who repent. Christ purchased full redemption for all who will turn from wickedness, forsake their evil thoughts and actions, and trust fully in Him as Lord and Savior. Our church and countless Christians nationwide are praying for your full repentance. Please respond to the gospel. Forsake the path of wickedness you have pursued all your life. Turn to Christ, ask for forgiveness, and use your office to advance the cause of righteousness as is your duty instead of undermining it as has been your pattern. Governor Newsom, now is the acceptable time 
Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. He ended it for the master, John MacArthur, pastor, teacher. From a doctrinal perspective, do I agree with all that Dr. MacArthur teaches? No, I do not. I have said that before. We have some areas of strong disagreement. I am not a MacArthurite. I value his commentaries, his insight on the text. I do not know of anyone who has a higher view of Scripture than he does. So I have immense respect and esteem for him. But I thank God that John MacArthur is not some anemic, wimpy, milquetoast, sissified, skirt-wearing, back-scratching, ear-tickling, spineless, pop-psychologist, man-pleasing, and pathetic excuse of a preacher, as is so common. But instead, at age 83, he is still speaking truth to culture, and he is still refusing to compromise his biblical convictions. I pray God gives him another decade to preach, and most of all, I pray that his tribe would increase. A second category we must address are sins of omission. This is sin resulting from our not doing something we should do. Not do some, doing something we should do. We are omitting something we should be doing. James 4 verse 17. Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Someone once said to me, I don't do anything wrong. And my response was, yes, and you don't do anything right, and that's wrong. He was a zero. This is the sin classification that gets me. It's not so much what I do that's the problem, but it's what I don't do that I should do that is my struggle. The problem is what I could do and should do, and sometimes want to do, and sometimes intend to do, and sometimes plan to do, and then don't do. This service is special. I'm going to add an illustration I didn't have time for first service. I think it's relevant to this particular category of sin. Dane Rickford is a bishop uh, this morning visiting his grandparents, but I received his permission to share this. Dane... Some of us know him, probably most of us, as a faithful member of our congregation. He's just 19, but he is extremely mature for his age. Dane is a cowboy, not a pretend cowboy, not an urban cowboy, a real cowboy. He works on a ranch in Wolf Creek, about an hour and a half from here in Alpine County. I might add, he is an incredibly hard worker. Recently, one morning, he slept through his alarm, which he never does, so he rushed out the door and was en route to the ranch when at about 6.30, he found a Tesla stranded on the roadside. Um, this man had a flat tire. Uh, inside, this man, his girlfriend, and his daughter, and he had hit a rock, something happened, he had a flat tire. It was an isolated area. And there were no other cars, and there probably wouldn't be cars for some time. Dane said he found this man 
and this stranded car, and he just knew, inside of him, he just knew he should stop and offer these people his assistance. He felt God wanted him to do that, and so he did. I should have this car was stranded at over 8,000 feet in elevation. It had started to snow, and there was no cell service. Soon, both men learned that Teslas don't have spare tires. Neither one of them had a clue that was the case. So Dane brought this man down to a lower elevation where there was cell service. This man then literally spent three hours trying to find a towing service that would come out to such a remote area. He couldn't find one. So Dane called his AAA service who did find someone. So Dane brought this man back to his car and together waited for the truck AAA had sent. Dane had also searched for a Tesla tire replacement and literally couldn't find one. Uh, in the valley, in Carson City, he couldn't find one except for the dealership in Reno. So this tow truck driver brought the three-stranded motorist and this Tesla to Reno. And then Dane continued on to the ranch. But altogether, he had invested five hours of his time rescuing these people. I said, Dane, what if you had decided to just ignore them and drive on past them? He said, then my conscience would have made me turn around. I couldn't. Dane was so convinced that God chose him to assist these people that if he hadn't done that, it would have constituted on his part a sin of omission. Don't misunderstand this. We can't help everyone, and we're not expected to, but we can help someone if God prompts us to, and they did that, and I cannot tell you how proud I am of Dane Ridford. In summation, God imputed Adam's original sin to our spiritual account, so we are as guilty as he was. We inherited a sin nature from Adam through our parents and preceding generations. And this sin nature cannot be rehabilitated or improved. It's rotten to the core. 24-7, we either do something we shouldn't do or else we don't do something we should do. And psychologists indicate that we forget about 99% of them both. But this doctrine called complete sanctification or sinless perfection argues, no, 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 that doesn't have to be true. As a Christian, we can progress in personal holiness and reach a sanctified state to where our original sin has been eradicated and our old nature is rendered inoperative and we no longer commit sin. In a practical sense, we have been perfected. We're perfect and sinless. John couldn't disagree more. Let's reread 1 John 1, verse 8 and 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. According to this verse, if we contend we have reached this total, complete, sanctified state and we no longer sin, then we are self-deceived and we're being untruthful. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar and his word is not in us. According to John, if we claim the state of entire sanctification, if we claim sinless perfection, then we're calling God a liar 
And people, we don't want to do that. I mentioned the Nazarene church at the beginning of this message. I am told from numerous conversations with Nazarenes that Nazarenes are understanding the impossible nature of this doctrine. One Nazarene theologian was asked if he believed in sinless perfection. He said, I do, but the problem is I have never been able to practice it. And that's because he can't. And none of us can until we get to heaven. But we can do better, and we're going to talk about that next time. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. I hope today was a lot of stuff, I know. I hope and pray it made sense. I pray that you'll use it to challenge our thinking and change our behavior. We must admit, we must be humble enough to acknowledge your sin when we are guilty of committing sin. And uh, we're going to talk about next week how we rectify that situation. But Lord, help us never to become arrogant and proud and think that we've reached a point of, you know, entire sanctification and that we're everything we should be. We're not. We're so far from it. I'm thankful for your grace and your mercy. And that's the only reason we can have a relationship with you. So, Father, continue to use this message in our hearts. I pray your word will do its work. And I thank you in the special name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.